Thanks, Andrew. Uh, uh, I checked my record. The last time I was here on this pulpit on a Sunday morning uh, was way back in 2018, July. Uh, so that was a long time. Uh, it's good that I can still recognize uh, many familiar faces. Uh, good to see you and have fellowship uh, with you all today around God's Word. Uh, but also great to see many new faces uh, that I have not seen before. Uh, keep your Bible at Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, we'll continue our series on that. Uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, help us uh, to be attentive to your word uh, as we hear the law and your promise in Jesus. Amen. The topic of today is law and promise. The law. What is the function of law and regulations? Uh, most people will say that their function is to prevent people for, do, for doing the wrong things. Uh, take for example, in Malaysia, we know there's a long time there have been issues of foreign workers being exploited. Uh, being abused. Uh, they have to pay excessive agent fees to come over. And when they are here, they have to work very hard and pay very little uh, for the long hours they put in. For a long time, many NGOs in Malaysia are asking for clear rules and regulations uh, to govern the market. Uh, they believe that with legal framework, proper legal framework in place, uh, these workers will be protected and uh, hopefully exploitations will be reduced. Now I'm sure that if eventually if, if, the, if the laws are being passed in parliament and there are good laws in place, uh, then we can be sure that some business owners will be less likely to mistreat their foreign workers uh, because they are afraid of breaking the law and facing the punishment. But I think we can also be sure that even with the new laws in place, many employers will still continue to old practice. Uh, they might try to find legal loopholes or some will even break the law blatantly as long as they're not caught by the authorities. I mean, we are none of doing that, isn't it? So you see, what the law here is doing is, is not to prevent wrongdoings only, but at the same time, the law is to review wrongdoings, isn't it? Uh, when there's law in place, it is more obvious that those people have done wrong because they broke the law. It is more obvious that they are committing an evil act and deserving of punishment. And so in our Galatians passage today, uh, when Paul talks about the law, uh, it is this second function that he's emphasizing. Paul said that the purpose of the law in the Old Testament, according to this passage, uh, is to reveal the sinfulness of mankind. He says that the law cannot make someone righteous. It only reveals that person's unrighteousness. Uh, here, uh, Paul is speaking about the function of the law. Uh, because he tried to explain the relationship between the law and the promise, uh, both of which comes from God. Uh, previously, uh, in our verses before this, Paul had already made a comparison uh, between the law and promise. Back in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, he said that those who rely on the law are under a curse, whereas those who rely on faith will receive the promise through Abraham that is fulfilled in Jesus. So in the Bible verses before this, Paul had already established that what, are more, what is more important are the promises. Uh, the law, not so important. Actually, not important at all. And so here lies the big question. Uh, if the law is not important in the salvation of God, uh, then why did God give the law to the Israelites? Uh, why is it that when we look at the Old Testament, the law occupies a big role, especially in the first five books? in the Pentateuch. 
Uh, this is exactly the question that Paul seeks to answer in our passage today, starting from verse 15. Uh, why then the law, if the more important are the promises? Uh, but before Paul explained that, he first wants to make sure one thing. Uh, he wants to make sure that the law that comes afterwards uh, will in no way affect the promises that were given beforehand. And so in chapter 317, he says, the law which comes 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. Uh, we have our slide here. You can see it graphically. Uh, the choir team cannot see it. I suggest you can turn on your YouTube and see, uh, but make sure you silent it when you're on the YouTube. You can see the slides there. Uh, you see here, it is only after God had given the promises to Abraham, we forget about 430 years later, then only came the law through Moses. Uh, because God had already promised beforehand, therefore the law afterward does not change it, does not annul the promises. And so in three, chapter 3, 40, 15, Paul gives an, an, uh, an analogy. He says, even with agreements or contracts made between humans, and now the word covenant can simply mean agreement or contracts. Even between humans, uh, when uh, the contract has been set, has been signed off, uh, whatever is written in the contract cannot be set aside, isn't it? Cannot, cannot have additional terms added in it. Uh, let me give you a modern analogy. Uh, let's say you call someone to install a new aircon uh, in your house. Okay? The workers have done their job, and before they leave, they give an invoice with the amount of 1,500 ringgit uh, to be transferred to the company's bank account. Uh, so this 1,500 is the amount agreed between you and the company. It cannot be changed, isn't it? Uh, you cannot afterwards call the boss of the company and say, Hey boss, hey, can I pay you 50 ringgit less? Uh? You know, just now when the workers come, uh, I gave them good, nice soft drinks, you know, uh, give some discount. Uh. I mean, you can't do that, right? It's quite annoying to the boss and it's quite cheapskate. Uh, you have already ratified the terms when you accept the invoice. Uh, you cannot ask to pay less, nor the company can ask you to pay more. Likewise, here Paul said that 430 years ago, he had already established a covenant, an agreement with Abraham. He will give the inheritance to Abraham's promise. And what are the terms of this covenant? Well, there's no term. Abraham does not need to do anything on his side. He only needs to believe God's promises that God will give the inheritance. And so when God had made this promise, it will not be changed. Even when later on he gave them the law, required them to keep the laws, those laws does not annul the promise. So Paul concludes in verse 18, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If it's a promise with no terms, it means that it is not by obeying the works of the law. If it is by obeying the law, then there's no promise. But God did give a promise. So this is a main point for verses 15 to 18. But within this section, uh, there's a very perplexing sentence in verse 16. Uh, if those Christians who have studied it uh, we have scratched their head trying to understand it. In verse 16, Paul says that the promise that God gave to Abraham and his offspring is actually referred to only one descendant, not many descendants. 
and this one is Jesus Christ. You see here in verse 16, Paul emphasizes on the singular form of the noun. Now it's a bit some language lesson. He said even in the Hebrew, the offspring is singular. Okay, offspring. It's not offsprings. It's not. There's no s. Therefore, it cannot refer to more than one. Now, if you study hard, if you know your language well, uh, you know that Paul may be a bit mischievous here. Because it is obvious that a noun in a singular form can be a collective noun, can refer to many, even though it is singular in form. So let's go to the next diagram. For example, a jury, isn't it? A jury is a group of people. It's in singular form. It would be quite mischievous of you to say, oh, because it's a jury, therefore there's only one person in the jury. It's not many people. Uh, it is the same with the word offspring, both in English as well as in Hebrew. That word is that now is a collective noun to refer to many descendants. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament in the Hebrew language, the word offspring in singular is often clearly referred to many Jewish people. So why does Paul emphasize in this way? Uh, to cut the long explanation short. Even though Paul is zooming in on the singular form, he's not saying that his method of interpretation is based strictly on grammar. But what he's trying to emphasize in the bigger picture is that it's not about grammatical, it's about Christological. He wants to emphasize that the promise is in fact directed to one offspring, Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, all the promises to Abraham are only fulfilled through this one Christ. Another diagram to help us understand. Now, in the book of Genesis, uh, it is obvious that when God gave promises to God, to Abraham and his offspring, uh, it is obvious that the promise was meant for them to inherit the land of Canaan, isn't it? And those who were to inherit the land of Canaan were many Jewish people, were many descendants. That was in the Old Testament. But we also know that in the bigger plan of God, when we come to the New Testament, uh, we know that the final inheritance that God wants to give to Abraham's offspring is not the land of Canaan, but ultimately the eternal life in God's kingdom. And we know that this inheritance can only be obtained through Jesus Christ. Uh, so in essence, this is what Paul wants to say. It's not you Jewish people, many of them, by biological descent, but through Jesus Christ. Christological because it is God's plan. Uh, so very quickly, let's now spend some time thinking about the implications here. Uh, I think these verses help us to understand how to interpret the Old Testament. I see the framework that Paul uses here, the next slide, is having Christ as the ultimate fulfillment. With the coming of Christ, we know that the final salvation is about forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Therefore, we use this framework to interpret all the writings and narratives in the Old Testament. So the story about Israelites entering the land of Canaan is not God telling us Christians that we also will receive many material blessings. But it is only a partial fulfillment that points to the final inheritance in Jesus. Uh, this is what we call biblical theology. Uh, but I want to say that this is not just an academic exercise, uh, but it's an important point for us to how to understand and live out God's words. You see, there are many churches now uh, who does not have this right understanding of biblical theology. That is why they misinterpret and misapply 
the passages, especially from the Old Testament. Now, if you have been to enough different churches and hear enough different speakers of the Old Testament, sometimes you realize that the same passage can have so different meanings, various different meanings. The same passage, sometimes it can be a good moral lesson. Sometimes the same passage can be about how we can be confident in our work. Even I heard a message about how to choose a Christian girlfriend. Well, those are, can be interesting, but it misses the point of how all this narrative is really to point to the final salvation plan in Jesus. Uh, this is a short uh, implication, and that was uh, the end of our first point of our sermon. Uh, the next diagram, which was, uh, the law does not announce the promise. Uh, can we have the next diagram? And so our second point is uh, the function of the law. Uh, now in verse 19, we probably see, or we, we finally see Paul probably begins to explain uh, why then the law? Why God give the law to Israelites if he doesn't change anything about the promise? Well, the answer that Paul gives here are very short, only six words. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now you see, there are two ways to understand this particular sentence. The law was added because of transgression. The first way to understand it is, it is to restrain the transgression, isn't it? This is one way to understand it, to prevent people from sinning. Now the second understanding is that it is to reveal transgressions. Uh, it is show that it is show clearly that people have sinned. And I've alluded this to my introduction that actually what Paul really meant is not the first one, uh, but it's only really the second one. Uh, how do we know that Paul really wants to zoom in on the second one and not the first one? Uh, it is because of the context. Other verses in here clearly show that Paul meant to refer a negative role and not a positive role of the law. If you look at verse 23, what does Paul say about the law? He says, we were held captive in prison under the law. What is the image that we've seen here? See, the law is like a judge. Uh, the law passed down sentences that we should be thrown into the prison. Why? Because we could not obey the commandments of the law. Therefore, we are to receive the punishment stipulated in it. And so we see how Paul emphasizes the function of not about restraining, but it's about revealing. The law condemns our sin and causes us to be imprisoned. In the same way, this is how we are to understand verse 24, when Paul says that before Christ came, the law was our guardian. Now when we read this by ourselves, when we, word, when we read the word guardian, uh, we often think of this guardian as a, as a role, like a, you know, like a teacher, uh, like an educator, someone who guides a child how to behave properly. But actually, I want us to think that actually what Paul refers here is not a normal teacher. It is actually a disciplined teacher, a teacher who disciplines you when you do wrong. Uh, we all can think back of our guru discipline, especially in our secondary school. When we think of our guru discipline, what do we come in mind? Is it someone who correct, who, who guides us slowly? No. It's someone who cares when we do wrong. I remember in our secondary school day, uh, my guru discipline is someone who is tall and bulky and the moustache is thicker than me. He looks more like a prison warden than a teacher to me. Uh, this is what the law 
is like to us who are under it. Uh, it gives up punishment when we do the wrong thing. We can see that what is clear is that Paul is not giving a positive role to the Lord. Or he's not saying that when he said the law is our guardian until Christ come, he's not saying that, okay, the law will slowly reform us and we become good enough, then we'll believe in Christ. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. What he meant is that the law imprisoned us under its judgment. We are trapped in it. And when Christ comes, we are freed from the law judgment through justification by faith. You see, the law shows us that we have committed many wrongs. It shows us that we should receive punishment. That is why we need to trust in Jesus. Trusting in Him to do what? Trusting that He died on the cross to receive those punishments on our behalf. Trusting in Him that He can remove the curse of the law from us so that we are made right before God. And see, this is how we should understand verse 24. The next slide, I think there's be a verse there on the screen. Do we have a next slide? Uh, oh, no, sorry, it's okay. Uh, let's, uh, if you just look at verse 24. Uh, so then, the law was our discipline teacher. Right? If you just re replace the guardian with discipline teacher. The law was our discipline teacher until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Through the law in the Old Testament, God shows us the punishment that we should receive for our sins. Let's just take two short verses from Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says here, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law, they are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring <clears throat> extraordinary afflictions. Affliction severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. This is how the law in the scripture imprisons us under the judgment of God. See, these curses in the Deuteronomy it was not only for the Jews, but it should also actually fall upon everyone who does not fear God. Because we know that it's not only Israel that belongs to God, but the whole world is held accountable under him. When we see that often, uh, we cannot miss to see how severe are these curses. Most people will cringe when we know that it should apply to us. But we should know that these are truly righteous judgments that our sin deserves. Of course, there are many in this world who will object to this kind of judgment. And they say, we do not deserve this. But you know what? Their objection only serves to reveal more of their unrighteousness. That they do not revere God and fear God's authority. But we who are led by the Holy Spirit, when we can see the rightness of God's judgment, then this will lead us to put our faith not in our works, but in faith in Christ. In fact, if you think about it, the law is not just written in the Old Testament pages. Uh, the judgment of the law is actually part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Christ say when it comes to preach the gospel? What did he say in the Sermon of the Mount in the book of Matthew? He said, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
In fact, you need to be perfect like God in order to enter it. He said, if your right eye causes you to have lustful thoughts, then you have to enter hell. So you see, the judgment of the law is in the gospel that Jesus preached. It is only when we understand the judgment that he spoke about, then we will understand what it means to have faith in him. We have faith in him that he will redeem us from God's righteous judgment. But you see, the sad thing is that many churches, now they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preach, but they don't talk much about the judgment of the law. They preach without talking about the wrath of God at all. Instead, they preach, believe in Jesus and you'll be freed of your guilty feelings. Depend on Jesus and you'll fulfill your true potential. Trust in Jesus and your life now will be happier. But it is not only the problems of the preachers, it's also the problems of the church goers. When you come to a church gathering, what are you hoping to attend? Is it to have a group of friends to have fellowship? Is it to fulfill your need for religion so you feel inner peace in your heart? You see, when these are the reasons that people come to church, then there might come one week when it is convenient for them and not come the other week when it is not convenient. But if we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ correctly, we should be saying the same thing as the Apostle Peter. What the Apostle Peter said to Jesus in John Gospel, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go when you have the words of eternal life? You see, we come to church to hear the word of God, words of eternal life. Where else should we go on a Sunday morning if not to a church gathering to hear these words? Uh, we need to know, brothers and sisters, that for many of us, it is often only one day out of seven that our faith in Jesus Christ is refined and strengthened in the church gathering, in the hearing of God's words. Whereas on the other six days, we are out there in the world being influenced, being influenced that our hearts against God might be hardened. They will suppress the truth about Him. We need to hear the righteous law of God so that when we are reminded of our state of sinfulness again, we will then again turn to Christ. This is the second point of the sermon, uh, the, pre the slide uh, earlier. The function of the law is to reveal our sins so that we might trust in Jesus. Now we come to the third point, sons and daughters in Christ. Paul continues in verse 25 saying, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the disciplined teacher. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons and daughters through faith. Becoming sons and daughters of God meant that we will no longer receive his righteous wrath. Because in Christ, all our transgressions have been forgiven. It is a glorious privilege to be made sons and daughters of God. Sometimes when I think about it, about how glorious it is to be children of God, I was thinking that we don't have to imagine how life is it in heaven whether we will be flying or, or whether we will be living in clouds or whether we have hollow in our head, we do need to do that imagining in order to feel how amazing it is to be God's children. I think all we need to see is the many wonderful things that we can enjoy now 
as a privileged position of being God's creation, human mankind. As we look around us, we see God has already given us humans so many amazing abilities and potentials to achieve so many things, extraordinary ones, now. See, all the goodness that we experience now as humans, these are all God's grace for us. And in fact, these are gracious provisions that we do not deserve because we all in our rebellion had once turned away from God. We had all once refused to give thanks to God. And under the judgment of the law, we ought to lose all those privileges and enjoyment. But in Jesus Christ, we know that all the good things that we can enjoy as humans will not be taken away from us forever. And more goodness will be added to us in a future kingdom. It is what it meant to be children of God. And in verse 28, Paul continues to say that this blessing in Jesus Christ will be given to all those who have faith in him, regardless of their status now on earth. He said this blessing in Christ is everyone get the same thing. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Now, these are three very significant categories of status in human society. Uh, in each pair of these three categories, one is superior, the other is inferior. Uh, we know that the superior one is the Jews, the free, and the male. You know, back in the first century, a Jewish male will often say this prayer of thanksgiving in the morning. He will say, Oh God, thank you for making me as a Jew and not a non-Jew. Thank you for making me a free man, not a slave. And thank you for making me a man and not a woman. Uh, but please, our brothers in Christ, please do this kind of prayer, okay? <laughs> uh, your sisters in Christ will be very angry with you. Uh, but on a more serious note, uh, we all know why those categories are inferior. We know the inferior status of a slave. Just look at the foreign workers in our country. Uh, we all know some races are more superior in certain places. If you are a white person in America, you are blessed. But if you are a colored person, you are marginalized. And for the females, we know that even now, many of them have been treated unfairly and harshly by their male counterpart, especially in traditional society. But in Jesus Christ, these differences of classes will be abolished. In Christ, everyone will receive the same blessing, the same honor, the same dignity. In God's kingdom, all the oppressive and abusive systems will be destroyed. All the evil acts of the superior classes will be stopped. Finally, for our conclusion, uh, in verse 28 also, Paul says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see how the theme of one has come full circle. Earlier, Paul says that it is for one offspring, and then there's only one God who gives the promise. And so all those who are in this one Christ now have become one body, one church. So finally, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have all come together as one through this one common faith. Let us hold, hold fast to this one gospel, rejecting any other false gospels. Let us exhort each other 
to live rightly according to the right understanding of this one promise. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that indeed you are not just a God full of compassion and love for us, but you are indeed the righteous God uh, that deserves our, our reverence of you. Thank you that uh, in your scripture you have shown us, you have revealed our state of sinfulness, that we may know our state of fallenness, that we may turn to Christ, uh, the promise that we need. Help us, Father, as we ponder again the rightness of the Lord, uh, that we may turn to your promise in Jesus, that we may have faith in him uh, and be justified and receive this blessing uh, regardless of who we are. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.